This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, in today for Catherine Cruz. As you heard in this morning's headlines, the Board of Water Supply says it's found no contaminants in the Halava shaft. Further testing results will be coming. And tomorrow, the Honolulu City Council is holding a special meeting about the Red Hill crisis. The Deputy Defense Secretary is already on the road today on that trip that will eventually bring her to Hawaii later this week. Stars and Stripes reports that Kathleen Hicks will be stopping in Michigan, Colorado, California, and Nebraska before making her way to Hawaii. And as you may know at this point, the Navy's water distribution system on Oahu goes to approximately 93,000 users. Most customers are military residents and their families, but there are also civilians on the system, and that includes seven public schools. So far, three of them have had disruptions to their water supplies because of contamination from Red Hill. I spoke yesterday with Randy Tanaka, who's assistant superintendent of the Board of Education, overseeing the Office of Facilities and Operations, the BOE's point person on facilities. While the issue of water quality often focuses on drinking water, it also touches a much broader part of life, and that's especially true when it comes to public schools. Primarily, you know, the source of water is primarily drinking water, but it affects our kitchen operations, our restroom operations, hand-washing operations, um, watering the grass kind of operations, uh, uh, all of the above. So whatever water we use, touch, or whatever, it's, it involves uh, to that degree. And when it comes to food preparation, how does that play into into that bigger picture? So it, it's really if we're either cooking, um, which is really the main thing because vegetables and all of that stuff we've got to wash, things of that nature, hand washing in the kitchens, which is a Department of Health regulation. Uh, so it impacts our, our food operation tremendously. But what we do is we kick back to food that doesn't require that kind of preparation. And unfortunately, a lot of it is pre-made or frozen. Pizza is an example. So that's how it affects our operations. We've got to change menus. We've got to resupply. And then we have to bring fresh water into the kitchens to, to wash our dishes. All our hand sanitizing stations, hand wash stations have to be, uh, uh, we have uh, their freestanding systems that pump water, you know, that foot pedal. Right. Um, so, so all of that, we, we touch nothing of the water coming out of the faucets. You mentioned that you're sort of reduced in the variety of food you're able to provide. How much of an issue is that for you? And I'm thinking of nutritional concerns, for instance. Well, all the meals we serve uh, have to meet the USDA requirement for, for nutrition. And Part of that requirement is reduced salt and sugar, providing milk. So uh, other than the rotation, it limits our rotation, you know, where one day we would maybe have cooked spaghetti, pizza, or, or something else. Our other fallback position is to go to the other schools to provide that hot meal service. But right now, I think the last, what is this, we're in second week now, hmm. um, third week, going on third week. Uh, we're we're revaluing all the menus. I mean, the kids love pizza every day, but pizza every day is probably not to the satisfaction of the parents. Uh, but uh, they're still getting getting nutritious meals. We just got to change up the rotation. And what is it that you would want to say to the parents of kids who are attending the schools that are affected by this? I think um, we responded quickly. You know, just based on the smell tests, we continue to apply that first level of if, if it smells like petroleum, then then we know we've got an issue. We, we're, we've shut it down. So far, it hasn't gone beyond that. But, you know, it's affected uh, of the seven, I think, three schools. There's no tracing, but we're still waiting for some tests and reconfirmation. I think uh, everybody's doing the best they can, but, you know, please, you know, common sense applies and it's hard to just say common sense applies, but, you know, please take the precautions. Use the bottled water. The military, from what I understand, has provided alternate housing for some of the families that they know are directly impacted. 
They have also provided the busing for the kids. If they, they're staying at a hotel in Waikiki, they're busing them to the schools. So just be practical about the the precautions, and we'll be all right. It, it'll take a little time. I think, you know, the the science is not exact in that regard, but I think if everyone adheres to the advice, I think we're going to be okay. And how's the cooperation been with this throughout the situation with the Navy? I think it's been good. They've been very uh, transparent when we ask them the questions, what schools, you know, they only know as much as they're testing. Same thing with the Department of Health. I think everybody's trying to achieve the same goal, you know, the the health for our, our students and and what we need to get done. So they've been pretty good. In fact, they've supplied us with what we call water buffaloes, which are those tanks that have fresh water in it. Mm -hmm. So they've provided it to all all our schools and as best they can because they've got a community they they have to serve also. So I believe some of those larger water tanks are are within the communities that that they have that's uh, pumping out water. So, yeah, I would say it's been good. They've been They've been very open with us and working with us. We have a pretty good line of communications. I was going to ask about the level of trust you have in terms of the information that you've been getting and and whether that's been consistent for you. Yeah, you know, um, we're a very trusting organization, the Department of Education, and we believe what people tell us. But, you know, we really take our lead from the Department of Health, the State Department of Health, and they validate and they tell us uh, based on what they know. So I don't think trust is a barrier. I think we're all trying to achieve the same goals. Um, the next big thing is how we start the flushing of the water. We have a flushing protocol. When school was out for a long time, we went back into the schools to flush all the pipes. So we have a flushing protocol that's already in place. And as as we get more information on the water, then we'll begin our flushing protocols. But for the most part, it's been a very cooperative situation with all state agencies, Board of Water Supply, the military, trying to have everybody understand this dilemma we face and what we're doing to address it. And I know it's challenging in terms of timeline, but do you have a sense? What do you have in terms of a sense of timing on all of this? You know, unfortunately, we don't. You know, the Department of Health has sent water samples to be measured. Some situations they're saying the water is is fine, but until they have a different level of confidence on what's happening, they still recommend that we do not drink the water. We minimize the uh, no oral hygiene, things of that nature, minimizing that water that's coming out of the tap. We continue to provide water to our schools, both drinking and bottled water and the water buffalo. So that's kind of, you know, it, it's at the direction of the Department of Health. And that bottled water, just curious, that you're supplying to the uh, schools, is that, does that get reimbursed by the military? How's that work? I don't know who's going to reimburse us, but we have had discussions with our congressional folks, and they have... They have stated that they're going to lean forward on reimbursement of that back to the Department of Education. Randy Tanaka, Supervising the Board of Education's Office of Facilities and Operations. He says that he's happy with the response of his team, which has also been able to make use of some difficult lessons from the pandemic. We have the public's interests and the children's interests that come first for us. And fortunately, you know, like I said, some of the things that we learned from COVID, whether it being rapid response, uh, mobilizing assets, getting our people out there, the flushing of the water systems, and even distance learning if it comes down to that. I think uh, we're, we're much better prepared because of some of the things that we've learned from, from the COVID experience. But, you know, we want everybody to be safe and stay safe and uh, We'll work through it. Randy, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Okay, we'll take care now. All right, you too. Aloha. Randy Tanaka is the Board of Education's Assistant Superintendent overseeing the Office of Facilities and Operations.
The impacts of the Red Hill crisis also stretch to other parts of the civilian population. Honolulu Civil Beats' Anita Hofschneider has been doing some reporting on that story and joins us now with an update. And Anita, you spoke with a single mother who's a civilian living in military housing. Tell us about her story a little bit. Thanks so much for having me today. Um, Yes, so the woman I spoke with, her name is Christine, and her situation is that she um, is a state employee, actually, and she was really happy a couple years ago to learn that she was eligible to live in an Ohana military community's housing complex. She's a single mother with two children still at home, and previously she had been renting elsewhere on the island and had been forced to move out of their two previous rentals when their landlords decided to move back in. So when she first moved into this military housing, she was really relieved because it had great, uh, reliable maintenance, and she it was spacious, a four-bedroom home, and she felt like, okay, this is the place where you know I can raise my family and we won't be forced to move. But you know what happened to her is what happened to thousands of other residents in November when they realized that the water was contaminated. And so she is among the residents who decided to um, move to Waikiki. But it was challenging. You know, it took her a while to, um, along with some other residents who are civilians, to um, get that um, lodging um, paid for. And she still is struggling. She hasn't been able to receive per diem from the Navy that um, she knows is going to military families. You know, and you mentioned in the story that you, uh, the Navy spokeswoman told you that there are 748 civilian households uh, at this point that are impacted by, by the Red Hill crisis. Can you characterize a little bit who those folks include? Yes. You know, it's actually a variety of civilians. So there's civilians who work for the Department of Defense, civilians who work for other parts of the federal government, military retirees. Um, and also civilians like Christine, who's actually a state employee. And you mentioned in terms of Christine's situation, so now the the good news in terms of her and her kids, they have housing in Waikiki, but meanwhile she still has her job that now she's got a, a pretty big commute back to Waina in terms of, of working, right? Yes, and she has a long commute, and she is also, you know, just struggling to um, handle food every day because, you know, previously she had a kitchen. She could cook for her kids. Now she says it costs her about $100 a day to be able to, you know, get food in Waikiki because they're in this hotel room without a full kitchen. And it's it's just really challenging because she's actually a single mother to be able to provide for her kids right now. You know, she's still paying rent on her old place. Her rent was almost 2800 a month. And so it's, you know, just financially, it's a strain. Emotionally, it's a strain. Um, You know, she's, of course, worried about the long-term health impacts for her children um, and, you know, not knowing how long that that contamination was there in the water. Um, And she also, you know, previously, many years ago, she lived on another, um, on an army base because she used to be a military wife. And um, one of her babies got sick from, at the time, she believed it was related to environmental toxins on base. And so, you know, she's kind of feeling this guilt for having um, accidentally exposed her children to this. And it's it's a lot to be taking, to be dealing with right now during the holiday season. You know, you mentioned that in terms of the, the concerns about the, the kids' health. And that's, I mean, basically similar to military families as well. Parents, understandably so, focused on the health and, and potential risks to their their children. Um, when it comes to the, the civilian side on this, are, are civilian families getting the getting access to the same resources as the, the military folks? Well, I should say that, you know, I did reach out to the Navy for this story, and they said that, um, you know, they, they are seeking additional funding to ensure that all residents by this situation are equally cared for. And so, you know, it remains to be seen, um, you know, how this all shakes out. But the Navy is saying that they, they do want all the residents affected by this to be equally cared for. And so I think that, you know, we'll have to see how this all plays out. You know, it seems like that may be a similar issue in terms of the question of reimbursement and per diems. When we just spoke with the DOE about reimbursement for bottled water, that certainly seems to be a work in progress. It sounds like maybe this per diem issue is is a similar situation. You know, my understanding is that with the lodging, that took a little while. And so, um, you know, there's a question of whether the per diem is just 
uh, coming slower to these communities. But it's definitely a question that needs to be answered because another person I spoke with for the story um, is a father who lives in a home that he believes was affected by this contamination, but that hasn't yet been, um, you know, acknowledged by the Navy as affected or, or hasn't hasn't been acknowledged yet. And so the his, the concern is, you know. Are, are more civilians going to be affected by this? And if that happens, if this if this becomes a wider problem, you know, how will they be taken care of? So it's definitely something that won't go away. All right. Thanks, Anita. Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Thank you for having me. You can read Anita's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years. Learn more by calling 834-2722. Fetal viability was considered to be around 28 weeks when Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. Now... He was born in 21 weeks. Michelle Butler went into labor at 21 weeks, and one of the infants survived. So how is medical technology changing the question of viability and the abortion debate? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. There's a new tool that will soon be ready to help victims of sexual abuse get support and treatment. The Kapiolani Medical Center for Women and Children Sex Abuse Treatment Center will be rolling out a new chat feature on its website next month. Right now, those seeking help can call the center's 24-hour hotline or walk in to get help. But staffers say this new web chat option will help reduce barriers to reporting sexual abuse. The conversations Russell Subiona spoke with Christy Werner, a social worker for the center, and Yasmin Cheney, the center's education and outreach manager, to learn more. What's the number one barrier to sex abuse victims seeking or getting help? Oh, that's such a complicated answer. I don't know if we can fully identify one number one barrier because I think it can be unique to the individual and their situation. I would say a fear of being blamed or shamed for the abuse is a barrier that I see quite frequently. Another barrier is a fear of retaliation or harm that they may further endanger themselves by coming forward with what happened to them. And another huge barrier I see is just around the intensity of the experience and the complete overwhelm somebody may be feeling to be able to kind of organize next steps. So often when we're in overwhelm, we're, we, we kind of like bottom out. We don't necessarily have all the skills available to do what we need to do next. Yasmin, I'm wondering if you have additional ones that you want to add. Yeah, on the education side, we see a couple of other factors play out. Sometimes children aren't even aware that what they're experiencing is abuse and that it, it isn't something that should be happening to them. And then the other group that we see that is sometimes within marriages, if there's a sexual assault happening within a domestic violence, interpersonal violence situation, sometimes folks aren't aware that being raped by their partner is a type of sexual violence and that there's help and support or even that it's a crime. To piggyback on that too, sometimes the other thing that we see is almost the sense of of individual may know that something wrong happened, but they wonder, is it bad enough to count as to qualify me getting services? I don't I don't know how to word that correctly, 
but there's that component as well. If somebody out there is listening and they're unsure if what they're experiencing, like they have an idea, maybe, you know, they know it's wrong, but at what point is it sexual abuse? For someone to access our services, I would say they don't even need to know whether or not it was sexual abuse. They can call us and, you know, soon we'll have um, web chat available as well as a way of entry into finding out more about our services, accessing our services, but they can just call us and say, I don't know what's going on, but something happened. And we can we can be the ones that kind of help them navigate through their experience, what's available for them, whether um, they might be eligible for some of our services um, or whether a referral out to another agency or resource might be a better option. I was just going to say that sexual violence is on a continuum. And so we can have on one side, there can be kind of exposure of one's body or imagery. There can be harassment. I mean, it takes many different shapes and forms. They can be being stalked and kind of experiencing a toxic environment that has a sexual nature to it that is disrupting their ability to function optimally or resulting in some emotional dysregulation. And so we we don't discern or kind of cut folks off to say this hasn't risen to a threshold in which we can provide services. Anyone along that spectrum that's experiencing it can reach out to us for support. Sounds like even if they might have an inkling that something's wrong, that it's worthwhile to get into contact with you. And Absolutely. And some of our services, I know that we've seen some people that they may not know whether something happened. Maybe they have a feeling that something may have happened a long time ago, but they don't quite have the memory or like the, what is the word I'm looking for? The, that ability to like confirm. And yet that doesn't deny them access to our services. We're more than happy to, to see them, to meet with them, to provide counseling or support as needed. So I just want to put that out there. When you think about abuse on a broader spectrum, there's a lot out there that indicates that abusers tend to be family, tend to be people that you're familiar with. Is this also the case with sexual abuse? Yeah, and we kind of educate folks about it. I think the recent stat is 93% of folks that are survivors of this experience, the offender is known to them. And that can be intrafamilial, but it could be coaches, it could be other community members, someone through their education. It's someone that has access to a child or to a person that often there's um, a relationship that already exists and is being exploited for these purposes. What would you say to, to either a victim or the family of the victim who feels like it's not anybody else's business, it's a family matter, we're going to handle it internally? I would say that it is a case-by-case scenario to some extent. Some families are well-resourced in the sense that maybe they can provide all of the support that's needed following a sexual assault incident. Oftentimes, though, I would say that this is probably consistent with most, most people and most experiences, but when something happens to a loved one, it doesn't just happen to that person in isolation me as the family member or loved person to that person, I am also feeling a pain or a grief or a trauma or an experience from that. And that's where outside help can be really useful because although the sexual assault may have happened to one individual in the family, oftentimes the whole family is experiencing the trauma of the assault. And therefore there's not just one person who's been affected, right? There's many people and having outside help can really help to address the whole needs of the family. And the other piece is when when we're hurting, right, we may not be able to see things as clearly, or we may also have some, some misconceptions about sexual violence, about what happened, that someone who has worked in the field and is trained and experienced and has seen this a great deal can, can provide a lot of information that can be really, really healthy. I think sometimes of sexual violence in terms of an injury, we want to be able to make sure that like an infection doesn't set in. And sometimes there can be certain negative beliefs we have about what happened or some misconceptions that can, can prolong somebody's 
pain and suffering. There's a huge shame factor here, especially here. You don't want to make shame. You don't want to bring shame on the family. That's an important obstacle to get past. I was just going to say that even if folks are feeling that they want to have the ownness of it and be the person that's handling that, we can still partner with them. Like we can help work with family members to help teach them how to deal with this within their family and give them tools and skills to navigate this and do protective parenting and practices for their children. And I think one nice thing that may have come out of the pandemic is we now can do telehealth and we can do sessions that that are from the privacy of someone's home in which they don't have to come into Harbor Court where we're located for services and have the possibility of that public shame or awareness of services. And so I think it's, it's an expansion of the way that we do our work and another way that we can provide privacy for folks handling this very sensitive topic. The other thing is our work is is confidential. So if someone's coming to see us, we're not releasing that information to anyone, nor is accessing services contingent upon police reporting or making what happened public. And so I just hope that that's another added measure. And then I also wanted to kind of just comment on the shame factor that you spoke of, because it is so true. There is such a an experience of shame that unfortunately happens with sexual violence that breaks my heart in so many ways, right? Like if my son were to get bit by my neighbor's dog, that would probably some, be something that comes up in conversation, maybe at the dinner table, maybe with family, maybe with acquaintances or friends. And yet if my son were to be sexually assaulted by my neighbor, suddenly that feels so isolated. And one of the things that I hope for in the future is that sexual violence and sexual assault can be seen as any other injury and can kind of have that same kind of holding space for what happened. Helping victims of sexual abuse and, and sexual assault, your organization has a lot of ways to get in touch with you. I know there's a, there's a phone number. I imagine they could walk in as well. I, I believe that there's, a, there's that component, but what I'm learning is new is this web chat feature. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works, when it'll be available? So we're expanding our hotline capabilities to include this web chat feature in which right now we have a 24-hour hotline that anyone can call at any time to access support. And there's a crisis worker or community liaison that's trained to take, to take crisis calls and can be there and assist in any way. And we get calls from people who may have had an acute immediate assault, calls from service providers that are wanting more information. We kind of see it across the board. The web chat will just kind of allow another entry point into our services so that chatters will speak with a live advocate, a trained crisis worker. It's a HIPAA compliant platform that's created specifically for mental health hotlines, meaning that it is completely protected. It has end-to-end -end encryption. The chats aren't saved anywhere and cannot be accessed by third parties. And a person can access some crisis counseling, information about our forensic medical coordination, information and referrals to support services within our agency or outside of our agency. And they can access our web chat straight through our website or also by texting our hotline number by using from their phone or their smartphone and they'll get kind of a web chat link if they're texting via their phone. That's hopefully gonna launch at the beginning of the year. So in January, 2022. Yeah, that's good to hear that there'll be additional ways for people to be able to reach you and, and do it in a way that, that they can do it comfortably if they don't feel so comfortable on the phone or walking in. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, have okay. a good day. Christy Werner and Yasmin Cheney from Kapiolani Medical Center's Sex Abuse Treatment Center talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on the center, click on the links on the conversation page of our website on hawaiipublicradio.org later today.
Buses on the Big Island. Hawaii County has ambitious goals for its Heleon public transit system. Those include a carbon-neutral bus fleet, the construction of four new transit hubs, and potentially a return to free fares for all riders. But the recent reality has been more challenging. The Heleon system has been plagued over the past few years with aging buses, reports of underserved routes, and high turnover of leadership. Those issues of Heleon have not deterred John Ando, who took over as the interim mass transit administrator back in August. He spoke to the conversation's Savannah Harriman Pote yesterday afternoon, and they started off with a simple question. How many people took the bus this year? At the present time, we don't have those statistics. We are actually inputting the ridership data into our database. But I can tell you last fiscal year, the system closed out at about 290 1,000 passenger trips between paratransit, bus, and taxi. And do we know how that compared to pre-pandemic? Pre-pandemic, I believe that was about 390,000. Okay. So ridership has been declining. And then the other question that I have is, Big Island Now reported in 2019 that the average rider for a one-way fare paid about $2.00. But the county was paying about eleven seventy-seven per rider. Do we have any updated numbers on what the county is paying per rider, either from 2021 or 2020? 2020 numbers have not been released by the National Transit Database just yet. I'm waiting for those figures to come. So the numbers that you have is the present numbers that we have. Right. So that... that Riders paying two dollars, but county paying eleven seventy seven per rider is still the most up to date number, just to confirm. Correct. Yes. Is it safe to assume or extrapolate that because ridership went down, the county is actually paying more per rider than they were in twenty nineteen? It's it all depends on how much expenses the county incurred into the delivery of transit services in 2020. Right, so it's not a one-to-one. It's not a one-to-one. Okay. And then you compare that against the uh, revenues that were generated from the passengers. And FTA is a bit behind in releasing those numbers just because of the pandemic, because normally those numbers are out by now. One of the other main concerns about the Heleon just prior to the pandemic was how few of the county's buses were actually online. The number that I have in front of me, also reported by Big Island Now, is that just 13 of the county's fleet of 55 buses were actually operating on routes, and the county was having to contract out with private companies for supplemental assistance. Can you tell me what progress has been made on that front? Now we have approximately 30 buses that are operational. Um, Our goal is to get to 49, and our mechanics are working hard in bringing more of the buses up. Uh, Thanks to a donation from the city and county of Honolulu that helped us in getting some additional operable buses. Um, It is the desire to replace the entire fleet by 2024. We have enough grants to purchase 38 buses. And we have four buses that will be delivered next year, along with three hydrogen buses that will also be delivered. So we're well on our way in replacing the fleet and having a completely brand-new fleet for our passengers to enjoy. That once we have the brand-new fleet, then the cost of paying our contractor and providing vehicles would uh, be eliminated. One of the things that it is hard for me to wrap my head around when I think about building both in terms of time management but also cost an effective transportation system for the island of Hawaii is it is called the big island for a reason. Its population centers are very spread out, particularly Hilo and Kona, but also Pahoa, Waimea, Ocean View, Volcano, Can you discuss the unique challenges that face anyone who is attempting to connect these communities through one transit network? You know, it's the distance between the communities that just makes it uh, very challenging. 
and ensuring that we're providing a reliable service. And we, to comparable to the other islands, we can get to that mileage threshold on our vehicles much quicker than the other islands because of the number of hours and miles that these buses are traveling a day. A good example, our Route 1 that goes from Hilo to Kailua Kona via the Hamakua Coast, that route in itself takes three and a half hours um, one way. So that bus is basically in service for seven hours when it when it's all said and done. Another route that we have that goes from Pahala to the South Kohala Resorts, that's another route that takes about three hours and uh, 45 minutes one way. That route also puts a lot of miles on as well. So we want to make sure that as we get the new fleet of the future that we're buying the appropriate buses that can handle our various terrains from flat land to high mountain tops, like going over the Daniel K. Nui Highway as a perfect example, or down into the gulches along the Hamakua Coast. One of the other things that you put forward in your presentation as a goal of the master plan was a possible fare-free project, particularly something that would be studied in the next two years. Can you articulate what that means to listeners and also say how it fits in with the goals you just mentioned? With public transit, right now the present people that are using the transit system are low income, and they have to live dollar for dollar daily. And if we can remove that barrier of the cost of transportation, which is a large cost to many low-income families, and then allow them to put that cost back into other needs that they may require, such as shopping, medical appointments, or whatnot, then they would make more trips on the public transit system and therefore be able to help contribute more to our overall economy. I see transit as an, as an equity social issue. And I think of it like the library. If, if the library can be free, free to all, and we're providing a, a highly valuable benefit to the community by educating those that are reading, we, we should think of transit in the same manner. And there's been some successful transit systems across the country, Olympia, Washington, Burlington, North Carolina, um, Missoula, Montana, and even Kansas City, Missouri, that have transition their transit systems to fare free with great success. I'm really, in, I'm really inspired by these goals. I do wonder, though, because of the position that Heleon is in financially and because of the unique geography of Hawaii Island, as well as the reputation of our transit system from past years, when we look at the disparity between what the county is paying, most updated numbers, $11 and change for each ride versus the $2 in fare that individuals are paying, and the understanding that ridership went down during the pandemic, it feels kind of like what we're doing is saying, build it and they will come which doesn't always work out, unfortunately. John, how do you respond to that? The transit system has history to show that what it was in the 300,000 passenger trip range in the early 2000s, when the system went fare-free from 2005 to 2013, ridership increased to 1.2 million passenger trips. So... And the system was building at that time. New buses were coming online during that period, and people were able to depend and rely on the transit system. And this was solely using general funds and highway funds at the time. We have a golden opportunity to recreate that. We are funded through the general excise tax through 2030 solely for the purposes of rebuilding this mass transit system and making it a true economic driver. We have the opportunity to build relationships and partnerships with businesses, community groups, so that we can promote our services to be what 
our services should be. We have an opportunity to use the general excise tax funds to get us new buses combined with our federal funds, build bus stops, and build all the necessary elements to show that we have a comprehensive transit system that can be, as I mentioned earlier, that congestion buster. And I think by building all those elements and demonstrating reliability and consistency, people will start to realize that using public transit will be a more effective means versus having to drive from point A to point B in a single occupant vehicle. We have people discovering that now we go to the Coda Airport via six routes, seven days a week with multiple trips. People are actually from Hilo taking advantage of our new Route 2 Blue Line to go to Coda Airport and not have to worry about paying $60 a day to park their vehicle there, for instance. And that's the type of things that we would like to start seeing island residents take advantage of this mass transit system. I do also want to add that while $11.47 may seem high, for a rural transit system, when you compare that to other rural transit systems around the country, the number is still fairly low. And as we continue to rebuild that ridership, that number can ultimately come down. We're not going to be as low as the subsidy when it comes to like a system like the bus in Honolulu, just because they carry uh, multi-million uh, passenger trips a year. But for a rural system, historically, the system did perform very well, and I think it has an opportunity to do just that again, if we can just restore credibility and reliability. John Ando. Hawaii County's Interim Mass Transit Administrator, speaking with Conversations, Savannah Harriman-Pope. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Moku Kitchen on Oahu, now hiring multiple front and back-of-house positions. Application at mokukitchen.com slash careers. On the next Fresh Air, writer Grace M. Cho talks about her Korean mother who married an American and immigrated to the U.S. in 1972. She would eventually be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Cho believes the trauma her mother experienced during and after the Korean War contributed to her mental illness. Cho's new memoir is called Tastes Like War. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Artificial lighting and young seabirds do not make for a good mix. We've often heard about how artificial lighting can affect fledgling seabirds. But did you know there's also an impact on fledgling turtles? Catherine Cruz recently had the chance to talk to U.S. fish and wildlife biologist Jeannie Kim and Sheldon Plentovich, coordinator for the Pacific Islands Coastal Program. They bring stories from the field about the loss of wildlife. Most at risk are the endangered species of petrels and shearwater birds, whose fledgling season ends this week. We first heard from Ginny. Anywhere there are seabirds that are nocturnally active seabirds, such as the wedge-tailed shearwater, that are located on all the islands, and then some of the endangered species that are located in the mountainous areas on most of the islands, not all, but most of the islands. And it's predominantly on Kauai. We have the New World Shearwater, but they are found on all the islands except for Oahu. We are currently investigating whether they're located here or not. 
lighting is a necessity for humans and safety and facilities. And there are places that can't field their lights fully or turn them off during the seabird season. And so that's when it becomes an issue for these birds. They usually navigate to sea and use the moon to navigate out from their nesting areas to the ocean. And they get confused with the artificial night light and end up circling the lights and either will be exhausted and fall out where they just drop to the ground or they hit structures such as power lines or buildings or anything else. So then once they are grounded, they're usually too weak to fly back. So it takes them a while, but that's when the threat from dogs or cats and other rodent species, mongooses, can depredate seabird species while they're on the ground and confused and weak, or they can get run over by vehicles or never fly back out to the ocean to feed so they can die from starvation. It can happen anywhere on the island where they can be nesting on one side of the island. But as long as the nighttime lighting, the artificial lights are, are bright enough where it attracts them to the light source, they'll fly there versus out to the ocean. And usually when we have a new moon is when the lights are the biggest issue. When we have a full moon, it's not as bad. But yeah, lights, lights can be problematic where like there's foggy, like rainy conditions. So it kind of traps the light within the, you know, the area. And that makes it kind of an issue for, for them as well. And Sheldon, talk about what you saw with the bonfire. Lighting from human sources, such as street lights, stadium lights, bonfires, park lights, housing lights, those can all harm wildlife. And so Jenny's just talked about how they can harm baby seabirds, but they can also disorient baby sea turtles. And what happens is sea turtle hatchlings will instinctively move towards the ocean when they emerge from their nest. And the ocean is usually lighted naturally by the stars and the moon. But if hatchlings emerge and they see artificial light sources like floodlights or housing lights, they'll crawl inland towards those lights where they will die of dehydration or they will be preyed upon by cats, mongooses, or even invasive ants. And so that's really quite similar to what happens with our baby seabirds. You know, when they first leave the nest and they fledge, they are also disoriented by these housing lights. And so one source of light that people, you know, just don't really consider is bonfires. And most bonfires on our beaches are illegal. And we did have an incident. We had an incident at Keiki Beach Park on the North Shore where hatchling sea turtles were emerging from their nest and they were crawling straight towards an illegal bonfire. Oh, my gosh. And it was so horrible. Can you talk about what is seabird season and what is turtle hatching season? I think the message we would like to share is that the season for both turtles and seabirds extends from July 1st to December 15th. It's shorter, you know, for seabirds alone. But just to have a clear message, you know, we see our first sea turtle nest emerge at the very beginning of July. And so if our message is, you know, keep indoor unnecessary lights off and shield lighting and all those things we can do, Keep that down from July 1st through December 15th, which is the tail end of the seabird fledging season. Both of the species combined makes for a, a longer time period where unnecessary lights should be shielded, using curtains, keeping pets indoors, keeping cats from being out at night on their own. Keeping them indoors would be helpful for the species if they do fall out, but the issues with lighting around turtles, because where they are located are, you know, the coastal areas. Seabirds, on the other hand, fly and can get attracted to inland areas and not necessarily just the coastal areas. So we found birds in the central portion of the island and on opposite sides of the island where they left the nest for the first time. I'd like to add to that that I think that's a very, very important point when you're talking about sea turtles, that even though they are in coastal areas, they can be disoriented by lights that are miles away up on a ridge line. For example, at James Campbell National Wildlife Refuge, we had a cluster of nests that was on top of a dune, and when the hatchlings emerged, they saw a bright white light on the ridge line near the wind farm. It ended up being a light on private land, and it was many, many miles away, and it caused 
the death of hundreds of hatchling sea turtles. There have been success stories on the Kaneohe Marine Base as far as nesting uh, for sea turtles. We've been working closely with their biologists and their managers to address lighting issues on the base, and they have done an amazing job, you know, hunting down specific lights to get turned out, and then also sharing information with residents, you know, just turning off unnecessary lights, shielding light, and then using amber bulbs or bulbs that are less powerful in the orange, yellow, and red spectrum. The impact that we have on wildlife it's not well known in our communities, but the impact is, is profound. You know, when you start working with these individual species and you see how they behave when there's bright lighting, it really is eye-opening. You know, if you go to a stadium and you watch during seabird fallout season and you watch birds circling just outside of the light, you know, just getting more and more exhausted, It really is eye-opening, and hopefully we can share some of this information with the public so that people can make positive changes, not just during the specific time of year, but just all year long. Please cuckoo and watch the lights. Jeannie Kim, biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Sheldon Plentovich, coordinator for the Pacific Islands Coastal Program, talking with HBR's Catherine Cruz. That is the conversation for today. Tomorrow we'll pose a familiar question for local residents. What's a living wage in Hawaii? And has the time come to boost the state's minimum wage? Let us know what you think. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.